Okay, let's see. What is the date today? The 10th. It is June the 10th, 2010. That'd be 61010. So let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for another day of Your grace, another day that we can feed upon Your Word. As our country continues to spiral out of control, it seems to be getting darker all the time. Your Word just shines all the more brighter. We're so thankful that You've given us everything we need in order to execute Your plan. And now we pray that You will help us to concentrate so that we can inculcate your word, file it into epinosis doctrine, into our cardia. We thank you that you do this every time. We're filled with the Holy Spirit and concentrate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're continuing with Let's just start at verse 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I guess you all are aware that this is a big time chapter, don't you? Every chapter is big time, but this is really big time. We haven't got to the Scriptures yet. But we will be getting close to them by the time that we get to around verse 13. We still have ground to cover. So let's start with chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who, don't knew, who do not know God. I think that's far enough, but we'll uh, pick it up on verse 4. You can see it up here also on the notes. Do you all need the TV on or you all fine? Okay. So, that each of you know, the word for know is oida. It's an infinitive, perfect, active. Perfect tense means that you know something in the past. 
And the results of knowing that go on right into the present. That's very important when you're talking about knowing something. We don't carry around in our soul all the things that we know. Most of the things that we have learned are in our subconscious. But they're there. And whenever the pertinent stimulus, whatever it may be, that where you need a particular doctrine and your brain goes through all the synapses and they close and they fire and all these things come up and it brings that knowledge right into your consciousness, not your subconscious, but now it's right there on the front lines where you can, you can use it. Years ago, I was studying a, a work that Joe, Pastor Joe Griffin up in, where is that, Missouri? Is that, yeah, Missouri. And he did a wonderful study on that. And I think there's so many things that happen in our, in our bodies that we just take for granted. But the fact that we can learn something, maybe something that you have learned years ago, and you might not have used it for years, but it's still there. It's just like the hard drive in your, in your computer. It's a memory bank. And whenever you need it, boom, it goes right up on the screen, which would be your consciousness, and you're ready to use it. But one thing that cannot happen, it can't come on the screen if it was never put in the memory. And so this perfect tense means that all that is working together. And we don't ever think of that, do we? We don't ever give God glory or appreciation for how wonderfully we are made. And even the neurologists, those doctors that study the brain, and the, the, they're on the cutting edge, they still cannot completely describe how, how all this happens. They really don't know uh, certain things. They know the results of it. But I thought about that when I saw this word oida and in the perfect tense, that when you carry around doctrine in your soul, you don't need all the doctrine that you've learned at any given time. You need parts of it. But when you need it, that perfect tense means, boom, right there, it's on the screen. And we even have the help of the Holy Spirit to bring it into our conscious memory. How about that? Because uh, I was teaching the young people uh, yesterday that uh, the difference between the noose and the cardia, the mind and the heart, and that when it goes into the heart, into the cardia, the dominant portion of your soul, it becomes long-term memory. But if it won't, it will not go into your long-term memory if when you hear, when something is being taught, if it's not important to you, it's going to be lost. If you don't believe it, it's going to be lost. It's only when you understand it under the filling of the Holy Spirit and you believe it because it's important to you, then that it goes over into your heart and that is what actually changes who you are because you are what you think. And it's the Bible that takes all the different garbage that we have in our, in our souls. And we all have it. Now, your garbage might be different from my garbage, but it's all garbage. And that's why the Word of God, which is immutable and never changes, is able to go in there and change all the garbage into Christ's thinking. And that's why we're here, is to change our thinking to line up with Christ's thinking. And all that is in this Word Oida in the perfect tense. was something we never think about, but bam, there it is, right there. Whenever we think. Has there ever been a time when you had to 
you were trying to bring something up on the screen. I know there's been a few times in my life I tried to bring something on the screen and it never showed up. And you know why? I never learned it. There are going to be times when you need something and you're trying to bring it up in, on, on the screen into your conscious memory and it's not going to come because it's not there. But when that happens, what we, would, what we should do as good ambassadors and being vigilant and striving to stand firm for the faith is to find out what that information needs to be and put it there. So it's no disgrace if you don't know an answer to a question uh, to, to look it up, find out what it is, and then file it into your memory. I get questions through the emails all the time. And uh, I got one yesterday that I didn't know the answer to. I'll tell you what it was. It was in Leviticus chapter 4, and the person that sent the question said, why is it that in Leviticus chapter 4, they were commanded to take a female goat and use it as a sacrifice? I mean... This is symbolic of Christ, who is, of course, male. What's the deal? And I thought, boy, that's, that's, I, I get all kinds of questions. I thought, hmm, I don't really answer that, but I'm going to find out. So I found out the answer. So now I'll move on. <laughs> what? <laughs> the difference is that the ritual was the same, whether it was a male or female goat. But in context, the, the leaders, those that had a more higher standing in society, were to sacrifice a male goat. Male goats were more valuable than the female goats. And so those who were lesser, the normal people, when they sinned, and it wasn't an intentional sin, they did something possibly that they didn't know was a sin. This was the sacrifice, and it was lesser in value, the female was. And that's why it's said to use a female goat. It didn't have anything to do. The ritual was still the same, which portrayed and pointed to Christ on the cross. So that was my answer, the short answer. I gave her um, a couple pages of research. Anyway, I'm just I'm, what I'm telling you, there are going to be times when people are going to ask you questions or you may just be stumped on something. And that's okay. You can't bring it on the screen if it's not in your hard drive. And I have to change that for a certain person back there on this back row because hard driving is when you don't have good shocks on your car. Because <laughs> some people hard drive. But I'm not going to mention any names. Anyhow. Uh, so the perfect tense indicates that the knowledge was acquired in the past with results continuing into the present. The problem is usually that people have not learned what they need in order to obey God's commands. And that's, you're not, you're not going to know it all. We have to learn incrementally, line upon line, precept upon precept. But what so many believers do wrong is when they hit a stump when they are stymied, they can't go forward because they don't know the biblical answer. They just say, oh, well, I'll just do it my way. Instead of looking and digging to find out what God has to say on the matter. 
I thought I would just throw that in while we were on that word oida. So, that each of you know how to possess, we went over this already, kataomai, infinitive. This is the present middle. How to possess this, how to possess his own vessel. Remember what I said when you're looking, that doesn't communicate probably to most people, how to possess his own vessel. But, Learning to control your body does, doesn't it? And that's what it's talking about. How to possess your own vessel means how to control your body. And in the context here, it's talking about libido. It's talking about the sexual urges that people have, that we are to do it, present tense, continue to do it. And the middle voice means that you are benefited by doing it. And a lot of people don't get that. Most people don't like Christianity because they think it puts a lid on all the fun in life. That all the really fun things that people want to do, which is, in a lot of cases, they just want to go out and fornicate anytime they want to with anybody they want to. It feels good, so let's do it. But if you do it God's way by controlling your body and limiting that exercise to only your spouse then you're going to be benefited by it. You're not going to lose out. That's what people think. Well, I'm losing out. If, you have, if your marriage is constructed right and you have spiritual momentum and you're depending on God <clears throat> and trusting what He says to be true, then your sex life and marriage is going to be so wonderful and you're not going to be even thinking about strength. But people don't know that because they never give God a chance. They don't trust Him. They do it their way. Instead of that being in the middle voice, which would be beneficial to them, they bring down a house of trouble on their own head. I don't need to even to elaborate. You all know what I'm talking about. Not only am I talking about the physical ailments, the physical end of it, but the soulish one. You think you have garbage in your soul now? You, all of us do to a degree. But when you start getting into this type of business, your soul is saturated with garbage. And then you add to that guilt. And what are you going to do with the guilt then? And no one is smart enough. I, remember, it wasn't that long ago I said that about 80% of the men who stray get caught. That's not very good odds, is it? It's not worth it. And I have personally known people. You don't know them, so don't guess, try to guess who they are. But I've known people who have ignored this, got disenchanted in their own marriage, and started straying, and they lost everything. And it never is worth it. So that's what's in this word, kataomai, which is the present middle. The vessel is skeus, skeus. Noun, accused of singular nominative. And it's just, remember I, last uh, what, Tuesday, I called y'all a bunch of clay jars. And y'all came back. <laughs> I'm amazed. That's what we are. That's what it means. A vessel. They're, most of the vessels they had was made, were made out of some kind of mud, some kind of clay, something in order to um, hold whatever they were carrying, water or food or whatever. 
And that's what we have. That's what I'm looking at is your vessel. You're looking at my vessel, which is a clay pot. It just holds our soul. That's all it is. And today, the great importance in society is put on the vessel and not what's in it. Is that not true? No, it's true. Everywhere you look, whether it's in magazines, TV, radio, movies, you name it, it's always on the body, especially with the younger people. Isn't it amazing how that gets less important as you get older? (laughs) I think that's a good thing. It's hard to be it's it's hard to be vain when you're in your sixties, isn't it? Or seventies or eighties or whatever it may be. <laughs> so our body is a vessel containing our soul and spirit and is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are not to join that which is holy to that which is unholy. First Corinthians chapter six, verse thirteen through twenty. I think I'm gonna go into that in a little while, so we won't do it now. In order to accomplish this, believers must know how to possess their own vessels, meaning they must know how to control their sexual desires. And it really boils down to do you trust God or not. If you trust God that you're not really missing out and He's saving you a world of hurt, then you're going to be able to do it, especially when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we have Galatians 5:16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, that doesn't mean that there's going to be some kind of device that's going to keep you pure. You can do anything you want to, but you can't do it in the Spirit. When you're in the Spirit, you're going to do the things that are pleasing to God. But when you're not in the Spirit, when you're a carnal, then you don't give a hoot about God, about spirituality. You just want to satisfy yourself, selfishly. Believers not to be slaves to their fleshly desires. God gives us knowledge and power of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to resist temptation. Anyone who succumbs to lust, to sexual lust sins against his own body, your body is a temple, the first John, uh, first Corinthians six nineteen, and it is defiled through sexual sins. Person who fornicates commits a sin against his own body, and I didn't understand that in the spiritual sense. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and when you join your body to a prostitute or someone other than your spouse, then you become one with that person and it is defiling your temple, which is your body. And you're sinning against your own temple. It's tantamount to what the Israelites were doing when they would start worshiping idols. It's really as bad as idolatry. Hmm. Here's where I start tonight, I guess. In sanctification and honor, when a believer through the Holy Spirit resists sexual temptations, he is setting his body apart to God in order to honor Him. Both these words are in the dative case that would be sanctification and honor. And it is to your advantage to honor God by controlling your body. You have His promise that He's going to bless you when you obey Him. 
And He wants you to honor Him. And you can't honor Him when you're just trying to satisfy your lusts. Verse 5, it says, Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Prostitution and sexual perversion was a part of pagan religions that the Thessalonians knew all about. And I've been doing some studying on some of the things that they were accustomed to. According to Nelson's Bible Dictionary, Corinth was ancient Greece's most important trade city. At Corinth, the Apostle Paul established a flourishing church made up of a cross-section of the worldly-minded people who had flocked to Corinth to participate in gambling, legalized temple prostitution. Did you hear that? Legalized temple prostitution. Business adventures and amusements available in this first century Navy town. The city soon became a melting pot for approximately 500,000 people who lived there at the time of Paul's arrival. Merchants and sailors, anxious to work the docks, migrated to Corinth. Professional gamblers and athletes betting on the Ithmian Games, that would be like the Olympic Games that we are familiar with, they all lived there. Homeless slaves, free or runaway, roamed the streets day and night. Prostitutes, both male and female, were abundant. All of the Mediterranean world relished the lack of standards and the freedom of thought that prevailed in the city. These were the people who eventually made up the Corinthian church. <laughs> Remember, well, I taught 1 Corinthians, and they were the rowdy bunch. Well, you had everything from extreme legalism to extreme rowdiness. These were the people who eventually made up the Corinthian church, and they had to learn how to live together in harmony, although their national, social, economic, and religious backgrounds were very different. Near the city's marketplace, where the butcher stalls are meat markets that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10.25, the meat was often dedicated to pagan idols before being sold. This presented a cultural, religious problem for the Christians in Corinth. Remember, they said, should we eat meat? that has been dedicated to idols. And what was Paul's answer? It's just meat. The idol is nothing. There's nothing. This meat is no different than what you would have if it wasn't dedicated. And so the more mature Christians would eat it because they knew that it didn't make any difference. But the more immature believers thought, oh, this is sacrilege. You can't eat meat that's dedicated to an idol. And what did he tell the more mature believers they were to do? He said, you don't eat that meat in front of a weaker believer. Same thing goes for drinking. You have the freedom to drink. You have the freedom to eat eat uh, any, anything you want to eat. But if it's going to offend another person, get them out of fellowship, you don't do it. Then he talks about the Acropolis. It was fortified. It was 1,500 feet above the city. And on a foothill... There loomed the infamous temple of Aphrodite, or Venus. The pagan temple and its thousand temple prostitutes. That one temple had 1,000 temple prostitutes greatly influenced the city's culture and morals. Paul wrote two letters to the church of Corinthians. Both dealt with divisions in the church as well as immorality and abuse of Christian freedom. With this in mind... Let us do a word study. He says 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. So I want you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 
Now, you say, what does this have to do with Thessalonica? Well, Thessalonica wasn't that far from Corinth. They were in the same neighborhood, the general neighborhood. So the same thing that the people in Corinth were facing were the same things that the people in Thessalonica were facing. Y'all have it? First Corinthians 6, 9. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Hmm. Interesting. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And we've been over this before. It's in my book back there, the... Uh, can you tell? This is not a list of things that are going to keep people out of heaven. This is a, keep, a list of things that will keep people from inheriting heaven, and it's not the same. We've gone over that in the past. But he, there's a few words that he's going to deal with. He says the phrase we want to look in at is the effeminate, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves. According to the Greek translated here, the word for uh, effeminate, Malakos, M-A-L-A-K-O-S. And it means fine clothing, figuratively, a catamite, C-A-T-A-M-I-T-E. Catamite, according to Webster's, is a kept boy. In these days, it was very common for young males to prostitute themselves to older, wealthier men in exchange for money, education, or a place to live. These were not intended to be love relationships. Many of these men were married to women. These boys were simply kept for sexual purposes as live-in prostitutes. That makes me think about from time to time you'll see in the news there'll be a senator or a congressman or somebody that's well-known, has a wife, has a family and everything, and the next thing you know he's caught out soliciting a male prostitute. So nothing changes under the sun, does it? Only here, it was wide open. The next part of the phrase in the question is translated as abusers of themselves with mankind. And the Greek word for that is arsenokites. I'll spell that for you. A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-E-S. A-R-S-E-N. O-K-O-I-T-E-S. I guess that would be arsenokoites. And it's from and it means a sodomite. The word sodomite mean, uh, means male temple prostitute. This word has a Hebrew Old Testament counterpart in the Strong's Dictionary. The Hebrew word is kadesh. Q-A- Q-A-D-E-S-H. And it means a male devotee by prostitution to licentious idolatry. Although the definition is clear, some versions of the Bible translate this as homosexual and so forth. So uh, you, you're starting to get maybe nausea in your stomach, but this is just what it was. In, in fact, I have a part of this is this part about uh, Greece was the most homosexual area in the world of the 
of that era, and it was socially acceptable for for men to have mistresses and to have kept boys. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17 and 18, it says, No Israelite man or woman is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a male, uh, excuse me, of a female or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord, which would be the temple, into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because your Lord God detests them both. See, it's hard for us to get our mind around this. We think of religion and we think of it always worshiping God. But even today, there are still religions out there that don't worship God. Uh, There are Satan worshipers and everything in between. But then it was acceptable for, in fact, it was part of their culture that there were male and female prostitutes in these pagan temples. And I've got a few more pages to read you here for you to understand what their thought was. That that you could go to the temple and part of the temple worship was to fornicate with, with, with your choice, whether it be a male or a female, and how that was connected to the gods and their thinking behind it. That's what I'm trying to get across in some of these things I'm reading to you. Temple prostitutes devoted to Baal and the Canaanite god of fertility did indeed serve a purpose other than keeping attendance high at their temples. <laughs> I bet they didn't have to worry about people staying at home and watching TV. The devotees of Baal believed their orgastic practices would arouse him and result in rain- rainfall, which was thought to be his seed pouring down from heaven. One reason the Hebrew people seem to have had a hard time staying away from these prostitutes is that they may have been afraid that that Canaan was not the land of their god Yahweh and therefore he would not be able to protect them from the drought and crop failure. So they wanted to please the native god of the land that he might allow their crops and animals to thrive. So they thought, see, all of these gods had uh, something uh, connected to fertility. And they thought if they would go into these prostitutes, whether male or female, that this would please the God and then the God being fruitful themselves. It was kind of like a mediator between uh, these. Of course, there were no gods, but they they thought there were. And this would bring rain and this type of thing. It's really sicko, but that's what they they were thinking. Moreover, the religion practiced by these people was vile, for it included human sacrifice temple prostitution, mutilation of the body, sorcery and divination. All this was part of the worship. Among some of these groups, there were even official religious sanction for bestiality, which was punishable by death among the Hebrews, Exodus 22, 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 23, 17 18 makes the Hebrew reaction to temple prostitution very clear. No Israelite man or woman is to become a temple prostitute. And this is what it actually says in Deuteronomy 23, uh, 17, 18. It says, You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of, this says, a male prostitute, but in many translations it says, or of a dog. 
is talking about a male prostitute. They translated it a dog. In other words, if you were going to go in and you were going to hire them, the way it worked, they would go, uh, just to shorten some of this up, I'll just tell you what's in some of these other things. Um, in certain cultures, they would have to go, and, and this, um, this particular temple I was talking about outside of Corinth was one of them. All the women in that, in that nation, in that area, had to at least one time in their life go to the temple and have intercourse with the first guy that came by that chose them. That was, they had to do that at least one time in their life when they were still a virgin. And, and so the guys would go around and they would, I don't know if it was round or it was a rectangle or what, but they would go around and they'd be sitting in these booths and things and they'd say, okay, I'll take you. And they would take the money and they would pay. Uh, and, of course, the money went to uh, pay for the false priests that worshipped these uh, these false gods and idols and so forth. And after that, she was okay. At least she could get married. But she had to do that first. And the problem was, if you were a really a hot dish, you could get chosen right away. It was over and you were done. Now, I'm not saying it was sanctioning it or anything. But here's the bad part. If you were pretty calmly, you might have to go to that temple every day for three years before you were ever chosen. So, this, this is... I'm trying to give you the flavor of what he is telling them in this verse. <clears throat> in verse 5, he says, Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, Gentiles who do not know God. I'm giving you what the Gentiles were doing and what they were used to doing. They saw this every day of their life. The best meat that you could purchase was at these false gods and these temples and these uh, bardellos, whatever you want to call them. Says um, also religious sites where simulated changes of sex occurred. There is worship of a they, they have artifacts to show this. There is a worship of a bearded Venus considered to be both sexes to whom sacrifice was offered by men dressed as women and women dressed as men. Also, the Bible condemns that, of course, transvestite. Also, processions of Gali, G-A-L-L-I, where eunuch priests paraded through Syria, Asia Minor, and other places attired as women, soliciting the people to unholy rites. Are you beginning to see how sicko this whole thing was? And totally accepted out in the open? It says, Greece was perhaps the most homosexual society of ancient times. Plato said that a male's devotion to his male lover transcends devotion to office, money, parents, comrades, anything or anyone else in the world, and even transcended death itself. That's what Plato said. Uh, the Greeks idealized such love, believed that their gods engaged in it, and believed that some people were homosexual by nature. Preterasty was even institutionalized within the educational system. In addition, lesbianism and uh, uh, was... Uh, presented as well as transvestism. Now, if the gods were engaged in homosexual conduct, it's not unreasonable to propose that worship of such deities as Zeus, Ganymede, Hercules, and Osiris, and Apollo 
should involve homosexuality between humans and temples. And it goes on and on. So this is what happens when you get away from what God is saying. And we can't put our nose up in the air and think that we're all that much better, can we? When right down the road from here, about 60 miles, is a big city, and every year they have the homosexual gay parade. And all of the politicians, the people and the leaders, they clamor to get on the floats to be seen with this this. I don't even want to tell you what I think it is. I've seen some video before of some of the gay parades they have in California, and I could not show you in this, I could not show anybody how vile it was and all the atrocities that were going on, and the streets were lined, just like the rodeo parade in Houston. They're lined. This is the gay parade. Some of them were completely naked. They were doing every type of blasphemous thing you can think of, and some of the floats. Some of the the things they were showing were just vulgar, to say the least. And and we're in the 21st century, and we're supposed to be sophisticated, and we're supposed to rise above all that. And these same leaders, I don't know, I, I, I would suggest, I'm not sure, I can't say this unequivocally, but has there been a mayor in the last four, uh, four or five administrations that did not take part in this parade? I don't know, but I know that most of them did. As far as I'm concerned, if, I, if, if a, a, any leader got on a float in a gay parade, that's it. I don't care if he was my neighbor. I don't care if he was my brother. I don't care who he was. He'd never get elected again. And now what do we got in Houston? Is it a lesbian mayor? Is that what it is? Huh? That's what it leads to. And the people accept it and they think that God is going to just turn, just it's okay? And they wonder why there's calamities like all spill out in the Gulf and nobody knows what to do about it. Do you think that's all coincidence? I'm just surprised it didn't happen in the, in the Houston Ship Channel. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In Greek religion, prostitution was considered a priestly prerogative and extramarital sex was sometimes an act of worship. They considered this worship when they would go in and fornicate with prostitutes, whether they're male or female. Verse 6. And that no man transgress. Let's get the... Get the verse 5 and 6. Let's read that again before we lose our continuity here. That each of you knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. So, no man transgress. You have the Greek word here, hyperbino. In the Greek, that's H-U-P-E-R-B-A-I-N-O. It's an infinitive, present active, meaning it was ongoing. This would be to continue to transgress this way. It's made out of, it's a combination of two Greek words. Hyper, actually I put hyper. There's no Y in Greek, it's just a U. And they take the U and make it the Y. And it's like a hyperactive child. It comes from the Greek word, which is 
Huper, H-U-P-E-R, and it means beyond or above something. A hyperactive child is one that's beyond normal. They're like a, they're they're running on 220, and they were they were they should be wired for 110, something of that sort. So you have hyper plus bino means to go beyond what is right. This word is used only in this verse, which would make it a hapax legomena. That means it's only used one time in the Bible. And then it's, we have again an infinitive, another one right under there, a present active, and defraud his brother in the matter. Here we have pleon ekteko, P-L-E-O-N-E-K-T-E-K-O. And again, it's present active infinitive. You have a compound word here, pleon, which means more, plus echo is to have. It's to have more than another. It means to covet, take advantage, defraud. In the New Testament, to take advantage of someone else. And it says, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. There's always consequences when we yield to, to the flesh or try to defraud or take advantage of others. That's the way of the world, though. We call it climbing the ladder of success on the back of others, taking advantage of them, exploiting, never caring about what they have or what they, their need is. But for the believers, we have a higher calling. It's the royal family honor code. And what are we doing? We are not transgressing or defrauding our brother because the Lord is the avenger. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this also is what he's going to reap. You know what this means? You're not going to get by with anything. And neither am I. And when you think you have, when you go out there and you say, well, I can always rebound it, ha, 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 and, I, and you go ahead and do it, what do you think God thinks of that? huh? By the way, that's not a proper rebound. Anytime that you say, I can just rebound it later, I'll confess it to God and it'll all be removed and all. What you're not really acknowledging your sin. That is a gimmick. That's a trick. And you can't trick God. It's offense to God. Because God, the whole point in rebound is humility and you're not humble. And you think you can trick God that way? I don't suggest it. What happened? I'm out of, I'm out of uh, notes here. Okay. Huh? Well, that's what I'm going to have to do. I don't know where the rest of my notes are. <laughs> I haven't had a whole bunch. Okay, well, what I'm going to have to go to is what I was going to go to next anyway. Um, let me think of what verse it was. We were going to look at the difference between um, positional eternal life and experiential eternal life. Have y'all ever heard those before? No, you haven't. This is something brand new. I'm, I'm, I've got another place I can look for to get my the rest of this. Y'all go ahead and if you're taking notes, be be putting that as head as titles.
Which part? Okay, the first one is positional sanctification. I mean, excuse me, positional eternal life and experiential eternal life. By the way, I also have, uh, let's see if I can find it here. I have a visual of an altar that was used for the Phalic cult. If it's here. Well, it didn't get put on here either. Okay. Under positional eternal life, I want you to put that this is not progressive. <clears throat> it is not progressive. It is based on God's grace and has nothing to do with works. Remember a while back I told you that I was going to uh, give you information on this difference of the different types of eternal life and I said I never did get to it yet. Well, this is the time I was going to get to it because I had a, I had a, um, a scripture that I was going to illustrate something that had that in it. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to give a scripture that has that in it, I might as well deal with it. I also want you to put some scriptures down there. I want you to put John 3.16, John 3.15 and John 3.16. John 3.36. First John... Chapter 5, verse 13. <clears throat> now, under the experiential eternal life, I want you to put that that is progressive. That means that it doesn't just happen at a time. It goes on and on. And it does depend upon works. And I'm going to show you some verses that have to do with that. So you're, you're, you, you may be um, a bit dismayed about these particular verses, but there are verses that are conditional, that eternal life is conditioned upon works. Did you know that? Well, I'm going to take you to some and show you that like so many other things, like experiential and positional sanctification, remember that? And you have 
those who overcome positionally when we believe in Jesus Christ, but then there's only some who overcome experientially as they grow and mature spiritually. And we have something very similar to that in the eternal life. And so we're going to, the first place I want you to turn to is Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Matthew 19:29 And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life now, there's a whole list of things that is connected to this type of eternal life. But that's just the beginning. When you go to, let's just go down here to, go to John, uh, Romans 5.21. Romans 5.21. I guess we'll start in verse 20 since we don't want to break into the middle of the sentence. Romans 5.20. The law came in so that the transgressions would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through, through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's not the one I wanted. It's, excuse me, it's Romans 6.22. Yeah, Romans 6.22. Sorry about that. But now, having been freed from sin and slave to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. You understand that? Freed from sin and slave to God, derive the benefit, resulting in the outcome, eternal life. Look at Galatians 6, 8. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will... From the Spirit reap eternal life. So you have to sow to the Spirit in order to reap eternal life. Can that possibly be talking about positional eternal life? No. 
Because positional internal life depends on God and His faithfulness. Experiential eternal life depends upon you and your faithfulness. I wish I had, a start, I wish I had started this a lot earlier so I could expand and explain more because I see a lot of you are kind of looking out of the side of your eye like this. And I can understand why because there's a lot more explanation that needs to go into this and I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants right now since my notes aren't here. Uh-oh, and I just closed my whole thing here. Uh, but we've got, I think this is the best thing to do. We've got five minutes left. I just shut down all my notes here that I was bringing up. They're not notes. They're just lists of Scripture. I don't have the notes that I had here, so... I don't think I, I think the best thing to do at this point is just uh, retreat until uh, Tuesday. But what we're going to go over Tuesday when we first start is the fact that there is more than one type of eternal life. One of them has to do with eternal salvation, and that is by faith alone in Christ alone. It happens in a moment of time. It depends upon God and His faithfulness. It's all about grace. But there's there's um, 46 verses that have eternal life in them in the New Testament, and 11 of those 46 are not dealing with eternal life, but they're, I mean, eternal life as far as eternal salvation as we know it. They're talking about a different kind of eternal life that has to do with our experiential growth and, and producing good works. And this is something that if you, over time, somebody is going to point this out to you, so you better be ready for it. And that's why I was going to give that to you tonight. So it depends on the context of the verse. Here's one, here's one hint for you. If it's in the future tense, when it's talking about uh, getting eternal life, it's actually talking about experiential eternal life. It's actually a reward. And if it's in the present tense, then it's talking about the eternal life that you already know it. And that is what you received as an imputation from God the moment you believed in Jesus Christ. That's another way that you can tell. But this is an interesting, very interesting part. And it, it kind of, without the transitional verses that I had to go from where I was... Uh, on uh, the transgressing and so forth. It just seems like this is just thrown in there. But that's where, that's where we're going to go next time, and I'll have my notes, and hopefully you'll see it then. In the meantime, let's close. Father, thank You for this time. We're so abundantly given grace every single day that we do not deserve. And we may think that we are a far cry away from these decadent, despicable, immoral people and the degenerate things they were doing. But we're really not. We can fall into that same type of sin in a heartbeat. All we have to do is get away from Your Word, get away from divine viewpoint, and start satisfying ourselves 
And before we know it, we're right there in the midst of the rest of them. The only reason that we are on track is because of Your grace, because of Your love towards us, and because of Your Word. So we pray that You will help us recognize the importance of staying on track and all the great things that You have promised to those who do and the dire warnings for those who don't. So we pray that You will help us to meditate upon these things. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.